This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education X. Thank you for joining us. The main National Assessment of Educational Progress, or the main NAEP, has just released information on the 2022 student performances in math and reading. The NAEP shows declining student performance over the last three years during the COVID pandemic in both math and reading for students in both fourth and eighth grade. It's showing declines for most of the major subgroups of students, and that's true whether you break it out by ethnicity or gender or region of the country or the city or suburbs or rural areas. Or you can find declines in nearly every state, and you can find especially large declines in mathematics. So it's a depressing story, but um, it's one that uh, has some surprises in it as well. And uh, to discuss the results and the responses to this particular development on our knowledge about the state of American education, I have with me today Robin Lake of the Center on Reinventing Public Education, which has been tracking schools during the pandemic and has been tracking schools for a long time before that. So I'm very pleased to have Robin Lake with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you for joining me. It's really tremendous to be here with you again, Paul. Well, thank you, Robin. Um, are you surprised by the results or are they consistent with your expectations? I wish I could say I'm surprised. No, not at all. You know, as you say, we've been tracking the evidence base as it's been unfolding. So looking at state and local results, uh, of course, recently ACT results came out. They've all been pointing in the same direction, which is really a crisis, especially in math, but across the board for our kids, um, academically, not to mention other issues that they're dealing with. Um, and I guess I'm also not surprised, Paul, because we saw it unfolding in real time as we watched districts' response, right? I mean, we were looking at um, how quickly schools were closing down, how quickly they were reopening, um, what kind of education they were offering, and were yelling pretty loudly that we had a disaster unfolding, and it was the most vulnerable kids who would pay the price. That's what we were worried about, and that's what we're seeing. Well, okay, but there are some surprises there in, in the data, and I thought uh, I'd ask you about them. One for me was uh, the math-reading comparison. I thought maybe reading we would see big-time declines, uh, but the biggest declines are in math rather than reading. So why do you think that's the case? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not a curriculum person, but I have talked to some who have said, um, you know, maybe that's because um, kids really have to be in person to get math instruction, right? My own kids actually reported that to me when they were in remote learning. They had a hard time engaging in math concepts virtually, much harder than just, you know, reading a book, discussing it. Um, and they were less likely to be able to get real-time interventions from their teachers, meaning they had a question, you know, in class they can just raise their hand immediately a teacher is helping them through it and, you know, getting past it, but that wasn't the case in virtual education. So maybe, you know, math is just more challenging in remote instruction. Um, maybe parents are uh, uh, less well equipped to be able to help their kids in math at home and more equipped to help them in reading 
Uh, we can only speculate at this point, but those are some of the ideas. But it also may be that we read, no matter whether we go to school or not, we're reading, we're texting to our friends, we're uh, looking at what's going on on yeah. the internet. So maybe reading is just more uh, everyday uh, activity by kids as well as adults, and math requires some setting time aside to focus on it, unless you're a computer programmer or somebody <laughs> like that. You, you, right. you aren't going to be engaged in mathematics unless you really attend to it, whereas reading may be just part of a daily life. Yeah, yeah, that could be. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's one of those questions researchers should be digging into <laughs> and telling us what they find. <laughs> but you know, but the, here ma we are. the math scores, if you go back to 1990 when the main NAEP there's two kinds of NAEPs, you know, there's a long-term trend NAEP and the main NAEP, and mm -hmm. we, this is, these are the main NAEP results, which give us a lot more detail, and uh, that's what's so interesting about these results. And, uh, but they started in 1990, the main NAEP started in 1990. If you look at the math scores, they went up a lot over the last uh, two decades. Yeah, it's really right. uh, sort of a, something that we should have celebrated more than we did, the yeah. great improvements. Mm -hmm. I think it was like 18 points uh, increase, which is about two-thirds of a year of learning or something in that range. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so now we see a decline of six points, you know, sort of a third of all, all those gains are, are gone. So. Um, yeah, there we are. Um, and you know, it's a real question about how quickly kids will be able to recover those skills. And that's what's on my mind right now is we have what we have. The averages are um, bad in themselves, but we know that the averages mask a lot of variation. So, you know, every kid had a different pandemic experience. They may or may not have access to have had access to live instruction during their virtual education. They may or may not have had parents who could help them out, older siblings, etc. And so some are in really dire straits. Some are about to graduate. This is their last year in the public education system, and we have not been great in public education in differentiating student needs and then providing evidence-based interventions to be able to get them up to speed quickly. So that's pretty worrisome, isn't it? Well, you know, some of these variations that you're talking about surprised me because uh, for black students, some of the stories are, are better than you might think. So for example, in eighth grade math, the drop for black students was seven points, but for white students, it was eight points. Yes. And uh, in reading in eighth grade, black students showed no declines, and white students showed a decline of four points. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's actually the opposite of what right. I Right, we were surprised by the scores for students with disabilities. In the long-term trends is what I remember. It was, um, I think it was they, that they declined at about the same rate as other students, which surprised me, given that students with disabilities, you know, had more specialized needs and, um, we're often not well served during the pandemic. I, you know, I don't know what you think about that, Paul, but I wonder if a lower starting point, um, base starting point, which we, we knew that they were those both groups of kids, black kids, students with disabilities, lower income students were already far behind their white peers academically on average pre-pandemic. And so, you know, a, a six or eight point drop for them is 
pretty awful. <laughs> um, and um, so this yeah. is all true, yeah. uh, but um, you know, I don't think the level necessarily determines how big a, a jump is going to be or how big a decline is going to be. Mm-hmm. I don't think you necessarily are going to have less of a decline if you start at a lower level. You might have yeah. thought you would have had. I mean, I actually would have ex- would not have been surprised if the numbers had shown, you know, whites are off three points and blacks are off six points. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I, I wouldn't have been surprised at all. I found this more surprising. Yeah. Even the high-performing students tended to fall because we always said, "Well, high-performing students are going to do; they're they're going to find another way to learn, and we don't really have to worry about them." But right. I think it's much more across the board. Uh, it turns out instruction matters. Schools matter. <laughs> <laughs> right. Makes a difference, and we know that teachers were not able to cover as much material during the they just weren't they didn't cover the same curriculum. And they didn't cover it in the same ways that they normally did. So, um, so here. But, we but then, of course, we can't see a lot of evidence from the differences among the states about online learning and whether or not the schools that opened did better as compared to those that closed. I don't think we have enough data on that point. I think a lot more research has to be done on that to say anything conclusive. But the first cross I did. On this, the first quick look I did on this was how how is Florida doing and how is California mm-hmm, doing? Because mm-hmm. California shut its schools, Florida, uh, the governor said they must stay open, although they didn't necessarily all right. do that. Uh, but there wasn't that much difference between the two states. They yeah. they show some Florida looks better on one thing and California looks better on another. But I don't on t- total pictures really roughly the same. It's really a puzzle, and that's what NAEP is you know is really giving us that's new, I think, is these cross-state and then the cross-district, the TUDA results, um, some of which are, are equally puzzling. LA, for example, um, looked pretty good in comparison to other districts, and um, everybody I know who's in LA is really puzzled by that. Well, um, you know. so Alberto Carvalho sometimes has been on my podcasts, and. And he's got to feel good because he was in Miami and they're looking pretty good. And he's now in LA and yeah. they're looking pretty good. So <laughs> it's he, the Carvalho effect. <laughs> he must have known what was coming. <laughs> well, yes, but I will say, Paul, that in other studies um, out of Ohio and um, uh, believe the Tom Kane and Dan Goldhaber study, um, the ones that were used student level results were pointing to a, um, a significant impact from school closures. The longer schools close, the more time in remote learning, the worse for kids. And that was a more powerful indicator even than um, you know, demographic predictors. So you know, maybe it's the, maybe it's, you know, the NAEP approach, the NAEP sample, the fact we don't have student level information to work with here. Right, and who knows whether or not they got as good a sample in 2022 yes. as they have in the past. I I'm just wondering if some of these. I wonder if the sample in LA is skewed significantly. There's so we many. We know that kids. there was a lot of there's a lot of absenteeism. Yeah, and it's especially present in urban settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know from various sources that maybe as as uh, much as uh, 30 to 40 percent of the kids in urban areas are chronically absent, which means they're absent more than uh, a a month every year. So they may have been not taking the test on 
any given day. So, yes, yes. So we may have a, a some not as representative a sample in 2022 as in the past. I, I hate to say that because yeah. that's the refuge of anybody who that doesn't like the results. And it's not like I don't, you know, I don't have any axe to grind here, but I'm just wondering if 2022 isn't... Uh, I really wonder about that myself. So many missing kids and some of the more sophisticated studies have been able to try to control for that, you know, to look at which, about the sample um, and to be able to, you know, do what they did in Ohio, which is adjust the scores based on the Yes, and I looked at the North Carolina data, which is very yes. detailed and very precise, and I and it confirms what you're saying that the online experience was not a good experience. Now you're at Arizona State University, and they're one of the online places of the world. I mean, <laughs> they, if, if you want online education, you go to Arizona State. Yeah, so, that's right. So, so what's your take on, on online? Well, learning? I mean, it's um, it is interesting, isn't it? Uh, and of course, I uh, participated in one of the big studies of online charter schools with um, with Credo and Mathematica, and, and we found um, pretty terrible results. To be <laughs> um, if it was a virtual school, it was a bad school. It it it, it didn't look so good. Yeah. Um, now I will say that even. Um, at the end of that study, and um, as I've looked at virtual education over time, I've, I've known that some kids thrive in virtual learning settings. We saw that in the charter school results. Uh, we know that's true. We, when kids self-select into that model and they have the right supports in place or the right self-motivating attributes, they can do really, really well. We heard about that during the pandemic. It's just anecdotal, but um, but we heard so many stories from students who said, "I loved it." For, for once, I was out of the chaos of the classroom. I could go at my own pace. I did really well. I could, you know, focus on my music career and do school when I needed to. You know, all that stuff. And so, I think the trick for virtual education is to figure out what works and what doesn't, and for whom. That is to me a missed opportunity in these discussions about the academic results we're seeing um, as a result of the closures. Yes, we know that it was not good to have schools closed as long as they were, uh, but I think we can't miss the opportunity to say what did we learn about doing virtual education well during this time so that if we have ever have to do anything like it again, God forbid for you know 62 weeks, um, but if we have to do it for a short period, if some kids have to do it for medical reasons or whatever, we know how to do it well. Yeah, no, I quite agree that uh, you have to think about virtual education as a dynamic uh, educational undertaking. It, Online education during the pandemic was probably as bad as you could do it. Yes. There was a lot of asynchronous uh, stuff that was just stuck out there. and uh, Packets sent home. You know, that was virtual learning. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, you know, and uh, the other thing I think about virtual learning is you, you're competing against Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Because kids are being exposed to some extraordinary productions that mm -hmm. millions of dollars go into. And the finest actors in the world are 
uh, performing roles that are exceedingly fascinating to watch. And then you put me online to give a lecture, and I look pretty pale and <laughs> miserable <laughs> by comparison. Yeah. And I think too often uh, we don't want to invest the kind of resources into our programming. If we're going to go online, we've got to have really high production yes. values. But you know, um, we also just need to have really great instruction, and some teachers are really well suited to the virtual environment. One thing that we saw early in the pandemic was the Charter School Network Success Academies said, well, not all of our teachers are, are going to be great at virtual instruction, so let's take the ones that are great and give them a larger group of students to teach in their, in their, in their program, and then have other teachers do more of the intervention and personalized instruction. And then there were uh, the National Summer School Institute took that model and rolled it out to school districts around the country and said, actually, we'll have some master teachers, some of the best teachers in the country, teach classes and be able to provide professional development supports to your teacher to be able to, to you know, to teach smaller groups really, really well. So that's where I think things get really interesting. We can start playing with the, the teacher models, with professional development models, and instruction for kids. We can also play with the idea that sometimes, you know, kids could be in a building um, and be have access to master teachers from all around the world, but have people in the building who help them really internalize the lesson and make sure they're completing their homework and that kind of thing. Yes, I think that's uh, that's the wave of the future. Now, another wave of the future is uh, migration to a different kind of school, and we may have seen some of that, but uh, we're still waiting for strong, conclusive evidence. But based on our survey, we're seeing a, s a four percentage point decline in enrollment in the traditional public school, and it's being picked up about equally by private schools, charter schools, and the homeschooling experience. Yes. Now that's just our survey, and the surveys are subject to error, but what do you see out there? Is that uh, roughly how you would uh, yeah. interpret things, or do you have Yeah, we've uh, done a little bit of an enrollment analysis in Washington State, seen very similar things. During the pandemic, we saw a big shift over to homeschooling, to private schools, and to charter schools. We asked families what was it about those schools or programs that was enticing to them, and uh, one thing that we heard was uh, schools, those schools were just better set up to individualize instruction for kids. Uh, there was one school in particular in Washington State called Summit, it's a, a program out of California, and they have a whole setup online for self-paced instruction and mastery-based learning. and. So kids move at their own pace, but there's a lot of support built into the model to make sure kids stay on track. So, um, so there's that, just the you know, good instruction, good individualized instruction. But I think the other thing that we saw in our study of learning pods, which you know, was just this strange thing that popped up during the pandemic, people just created, you know, hired a teacher to teach their kids in their backyard or whatever. What we heard from them was, is a more joyful environment. It was a reminder that school can be fun and school doesn't have to be so stressful and you can learn a lot in a short period of time and still be able to run around and uh, do an organic garden or something. 
Um, a lot of families of color started those things to really focus at a you know, critical time in our nation on racial affirmation, racial healing, and to be able to craft a curriculum and an approach to discipline that worked for their kid, worked much better for their kids. And the other thing that we heard that was so interesting in the pods movement was that teachers loved working in pods because they could have real individualized relationships with kids. And they said, you know, it was a good reminder for them why they got into teaching in the first place. Um, many of them said they're not going back to the old district model and um, they have looked to private schools or, or even tutoring so they can maintain those, maintain those close relationships with kids. But still, those are very small operations. Oh yes. Very few students. Can you imagine this at scale? Wouldn't this be a tremendous undertaking to, yeah, to have I mean, pods at scale? For me, at scale is always meeting demand, right? So I don't know what the demand, the ultimate demand is for these things, but it's certainly more than we have now. So I think we could do a better job at supporting those small learning environments. Um, uh, growing effective charter schools, you know, a lot of charter schools have been shut down by school boards recently because of declining enrollment or other things, so we need to find opportunities to, to meet that demand. Um, uh, but one thing what we heard, that we heard from families and from parents is they wanted to do these small learning communities, but they still wanted access to sports and music opportunities and professional development supports for teachers so they could work with any kid who came in front of them, and that requires investment and supports. But an idea I've been playing with recently is to create a statewide innovation district that would provide that space to support those alternative kinds of schools at a larger scale, to provide professional development supports, to provide oversight on quality if they're using public dollars um, and to, you know, just create a governance structure so that we can take this seriously and respond to real demand out there. Well, one of the um, policy responses to that has been the creation of these education savings accounts. I think we have them in, in uh, Arizona and Florida, West Virginia, just past one. Uh, there's some others out there probably, but so is that an appropriate response to so? Well, money really matters, right? And what we heard from families of color, for example, when we said, you know, um, do you want to keep this thing going? They said, yes, we want to keep this thing going, but we have no money to keep this thing going. We can't keep paying for it out of our pockets, and we have to go back to our full-time jobs, and so we can't keep this thing going without public dollars. So. We, if we're serious about these kinds of alternatives, we have to fit, figure out a funding mechanism. And um, educational savings accounts, um, essentially dollars that can pay for course-based instruction, just a more flexible approach to being able to you know, buy a course here if it's the right thing for your kid or to create a micro school. I think those mechanisms are really important. You know. Um, you know, Paul, that our work uh, around choice has been trying to embrace the, the potential of choice, but also ensure that if public dollars are used, there's a real focus on equity and outcomes. And so, that's, you know, that's, that's the trick there, is figuring out how do we do that without squashing innovation, but that's, 
that's the fun work. <laughs> yeah, well, there's plenty of work there, and also just administering that. I mean, one of the things that's coming up with these education savings accounts is just who can be a vendor, uh, how do you prove that uh, the service is being priced fairly, uh, how, yes. you know, all those uh, details that go into administering any government program yes. uh, it could be an administrative nightmare, actually. It could. There's an organization called Step Up for Children in Florida that takes on that role, and I mean, Doug Tuthill is the, the person who runs that. I think it's been a very, very thoughtful endeavor. They've learned so much. So other states should be looking to Florida and Step Up to learn what they have learned to be able to support families. and. I think, I think a big part of what they do is, is helping families imagine what, what they might do with this money because so many of them just want to you know, send their child, of course, to a building, <laughs> to, a, to an existing school, rather than taking the time to really craft you know, a whole program for them, which takes more time and, and all. Um, but it's exciting to think about these intermediary organizations who could help do that. I keep thinking that the school of the future might be more of a manager of a portfolio of learning opportunities for kids than a provider of all those opportunities. And so we might imagine that charter management organizations in 10 years or so could be held accountable for the results of their group of kids. But uh, their job is essentially to match students with the best learning opportunities, whether they're in the school building or out in the community or in higher education, wherever that might be. Well, that's going to take resources, and the resources seem to be there right now because there's plenty of federal aid and property values have gone up and, uh, and uh, state income tax has generated plenty of revenue. So we are, we are flush today. But if I read the newspaper correctly, that flushness is going to disappear almost overnight and we're going to be uh, back into a land of scarcity before long. So is that the next crisis? We got fiscal cliffs coming. Um, you know, uh, our friends at Edunomics, Marguerite Rosa, have been warning of this for for a while now and um, yeah, the money will, will run out and if school districts are putting their money into salaries, people will have to be laid off when the money runs out. It's, it's not too complicated. Um, so, you know, a wise school district right now is investing in transformational change. Um, you know, new approaches to um, retaining teachers, making their jobs easier in creative new ways. Um, you know, wise states are thinking about investing in these new learning models and oversight systems. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think very strongly, I believe, that catch up is a big endeavor for us, but it can't be the goal. We will have failed if we spend the next five to ten years just getting kids up to where they were. We'll be lost. It was not a good. Well, situation. are there? Can you give us some examples, or even just one example of a of a district that's using the the flush money that's there right now to really do some innovative things? Yeah, yeah, um, a couple. Indianapolis Public Schools. Well, I wrote about them for a case study for you, Paul. <laughs> but well, they, share with our, uh, our, they, our listeners. Yes, yes, I will. They, for years, have been 
developing what they call in innovation network schools. And these are district schools, but they have autonomy to do things differently within the district. And so they have been over the last year or so expanding their innovation network schools to have more community run schools that have demonstrated results during the pandemic. They're partnering with charter schools to run innovation schools that do virtual education really well because they thought, well, we don't have to become expert in that. Maybe there are people in the community who already know how to do that. Um, they're also investor investing in tutoring pilots and other pilots that can help them understand how to do interventions more effectively long term with the kids that they've got. So that's great. Um, Baltimore City Public Schools has individualized education plans for every child that they're developing. That is so great. That makes, <laughs> that makes me so happy. It's long, long overdue, but really well needed right now. And they're investing in data systems to be able to inform those individualized plans for kids. So those are the kind of investments I think will really pay off in the future. Um, there's also, you know, and there are also many districts around the country that are really thinking about career preparation differently right now. Um, many that are experimenting with um, organizing teachers differently in teams and specializations. Mesa Public Schools partnering with my colleagues at ASU to do just that. So there's there's a lot of um, a lot of exciting stuff going on. I just think we need to get more organized about you know, documenting the evidence that these things work and then figuring out how to do more of that. Well, I'm delighted that there's somebody out there who's thinking on the cutting edge that is trying to really reinvent uh, public education. So uh, thank you, Robin. Well, we have an organizational name to live up to. So. <laughs> yes. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. My pleasure. I have been speaking with Robin Lake, director of the Center for Reinvention of Public Education at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for our new podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.